is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping. In this week for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Should hotels be forced to house the homeless? That issue will now be decided by voters in the city of Los Angeles in two years. The L.A. City Council discussed the issue today but decided to pass it off to the people. It would require hotels to offer up empty rooms each day to homeless people, whether the hotel wants to or not. We go in-depth to look at both sides. The new job numbers sure look nice, but inflation still has people feeling pessimistic about the economy. And Republicans who have questioned the 2020 election results could soon control elections in some battleground states. More preteens are being seen for mental health issues now. With kids heading back to school soon, we go in-depth into how these kids can best navigate the new school year. Airline seats, oh, those airline seats, you've heard the complaints. Now you get to make them to the FAA. And young sea turtles in Florida are all hatching as females now, and climate change might be why. And if you like cats, who doesn't like cats? You'll love... Don't answer that. You'll love a new popular video game where you play as a cat. Some animal groups are capitalizing off the game's popularity to help real cats. I'm allergic to cats. Yeah, the people who are allergic to cats. I'll leave that. Yeah. So we start uh, with hotels and the homeless. Ray Patel is owner of the Welcome Inn. That's an Eagle Rock and president of the Northeast Los Angeles Hotel Owners Association. He was at the city council <laughs> meeting today. Also with us is Jeremy Blazy, who is general counsel of Unite Here, Local 11, the union which supports the proposed ordinance. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Jeremy, uh, let's start with you since it's your union that, as I said, is supporting this. Tell us very quickly what the idea is. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for having us. Um, you know, we have a real problem in the city we are building far too many hotels and not enough housing. Developers are eating up space with new hotels where affordable housing can be built, and oftentimes developers are bulldozing housing to put in luxury hotels. And in a city with a housing crisis, this is really lunacy. Um, So this measure would do two things. Uh, First, it would make sure that hotel developments uh, that bulldoze housing have to replace the housing on a one-for-one basis. And second, it would create a voucher program so that unhoused individuals and families can have emergency shelter in vacant hotel rooms uh, with uh, uh, the hotels getting paid at a fair market rate for that. So it it really kind of – sure, go ahead. No, please finish your thought. It's, it's, it's really a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a solution to a problem. We have people sleeping on the streets all over our city, and at the same time, every night we have thousands of vacant hotel rooms. And we can do something about that by helping some of these unhoused families and individuals have shelter, emergency shelter, uh, in these vacant rooms. It's, it's, to us, it's a no-brainer. Okay, Ray, is, one of your pro- uh, is your property one of those hotels that commonly has a lot of vacancies? And do you agree with uh, what he said, that it's lunacy that we keep building hotels amid a housing crisis? Um, you know, uh, Jeremy's right. We need some kind of housing solution for our unhoused neighbors. But uh, um, this uh, initiative that was brought uh, to council by United 11 has many components, and the the initial uh, outreach, from my understanding, when they did to get the petition signed, was to uh, promote the fact that the, this petition would provide a solution by housing the unhoused in hotels with a voucher program. Now, separate from all the development uh, concerns that they have is the fact that uh, the city would uh, 
asked the hotels, according to that initiative, at 2 p.m. for us to send to them every day our available rooms so that they can issue hotel vouchers to the unhoused. And there's not much language in this initiative if they adopted it, which thankfully they did not, and it's going to ballot in 2024. But because there's no language in there, it doesn't tell us what happens when uh, we get one of those voucher uh, recipients into our hotel and they have uh, certain issues that need to be dealt with. And what I'm re- referring to is there's no component in there about wraparound services for the unhoused people that they're asking us to accept hotel badges for, like mental health, social uh, social workers, uh, food for them, uh, how to deal with their uh, Okay, all, 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 all good points, Ray, but, but I, I kind of get the feeling that maybe we're sort of delicately dancing around this issue. Uh, Ray, is the issue really that hotels, especially, you know, very expensive places, they just don't want to have people who are homeless checking into a hotel where the person in the next room might be shelling out 900 bucks a night? Is that what it's really about fundamentally? I think fundamentally, it's not only about that, but it can be also where the city would have to shell out 120 bucks or a limited service hotel also. Do paying guests want to be uh, next to somebody that might have some issues, you see? And the reality is I don't see the city of Los Angeles issuing hotel vouchers at the same regions for 600 a night. My association represents mainly the limited service hotels, which is the bulk of the hotels they would be sending voucher recipients to, which our rates are normally from maybe $80 to $120 a night. And it would dramatically affect our operations because paying guests would be right next to someone that uh, is homeless, and they may have some issues. And, you know, with the dawn of the Internet A's, it only takes a few bad experiences for paying guests to put in them that we're housing homeless people. Don't go to this place. Yeah, Jeremy, your thoughts on that? And just the whole notion that we're talking about taking you know, privately owned rooms and uh, turning them over through a government program to give to the unhoused. Well, a couple points. Uh, first of all, this is a a solution that we know works, and we know it works because the city has, uh, with a federal project called Project Room Key, housed uh, about 10,000 people over the last two years in vacant hotel rooms. And we know that this can be part of the solution, um, along with, with other measures out there, and this would be a more flexible, diffuse version of that program, which is unfortunately ending at this point. So instead of going forward, uh, we'd be going backward unless we take this effort. The public really supports this. You know, 66% of Angelinos in an LA Times poll said they support uh, placing unhoused families and individuals in, in, in vacant hotel rooms. 126,000 people signed the petition to put this on the ballot. That's the most valid signatures in any city initiative in but LA would they, history. But do you think they? But, would, but would they? Do you think supported if they were staying in the hotel themselves? You know, I think what's going on here a little bit is a, a real uh, unfortunate misconception of who the unhoused uh, population in our community is. And uh, I think, you know, we know about this very much firsthand because our members and work and workers who work in our industry are facing homelessness. We have hotel housekeepers who are sleeping in their cars between their night shift and their day shift because they don't have a place to stay in the city. We have workers who are... Uh, coming in and out of shelters, you know, there's a huge problem of the working poor. That, you know, certainly it's true that there are uh, unhoused people that need wraparound services. There's no question. But there is a much bigger population of people out there who just need a place to stay. 
And okay. In our current housing right. crisis, good, good they point. have no place to stay, and they are. They, and this is a place to help with that. Good point. That is Jeremy Blazy, General Counsel of Unite Here Local 11, the union which supports the proposed ordinance. And also Ray Patel, the owner of the Welcome Inn in Eagle Rock and president of the Northeast Los Angeles Hotel Owners Association. Gentlemen, thank you. Right now, though, the latest jobs report is out. Looks good. Unemployment dropped to 3.5%. 528,000 new jobs added, which has now made up for all the jobs lost since the pandemic started. But yet, but yet, people still aren't feeling very good about the economy. Guy Baker is Managing Director at Wealth Teams Alliance in Irvine. Guy, thanks for being with us. So there does seem to be somewhat of a disconnect. Uh, On the one hand, you look at the figures, people are working, more people now than before. Everyone should be feeling really great about the economy, but they don't. The polls show it. What's going on? Well, you're sure right. Uh, I mean, let's Let's face it, uh, these numbers, uh, while they are very positive, on one hand, just brought us back to where we were. And you got to look at what the base is on these employment numbers. Uh, How many people have pulled themselves out of uh, the employment pool because they can't find a job or they don't want a job because they're getting government subsidies, government benefits. So, you know, you you got to understand the underlying numbers in order to be able to interpret it correctly. But weren't rising interest rates supposed to put a dent in hiring? Weren't they supposed to, you know, chill really all activity for potential employers? Well, what I hear from employers is that they're having a hard time finding quality people to fill the jobs because a lot of people just don't want to work. So while on the one, it's kind of a, a paradox, isn't it? On the one hand, you've got jobs available, but nobody working. And so it looks like things are good, but I'm not sure they really are. Okay, I was going to ask you, I mean, from your point of view, where you sit, which one, which set of figures are, are the most weighing on your mind? Are you looking at the, the jobs figures and saying, well, it's not so bad? Or are you looking at the the poll numbers and people who are paying a lot of money just to buy, you know, food and staple items uh, at the supermarket and thinking to yourself, this isn't really good at all. Well, the number I look at most frequently is the ISM non-manufacturer producer index. And if it's above 50, then the economy is expanding. If If it's below 50, the economy is contracting. And it has dropped from over 60 down to 52 and has dropped precipitously in the last three or four months, which probably is a reflection of the supply chain, as well as the fact that the economy is contracting. If you look at GDP, I mean, GDP was what, 0.9%, uh, nine-tenths of a percent uh, this on this last report. So the economy obviously is not growing at any any pace whatsoever. Uh, you know, those are very worrisome numbers in my mind. Do you think a lot of this is mostly just the long tail of COVID and just the aftershocks and we're finally starting to flatten out here and that in the meantime, people might be getting the wrong messaging of doom and gloom? Well, I don't think doom and gloom is really where we should be in our minds. You know, I mean, if if you're working and you've got a job and, uh, you know, your income's stable, uh, you know, there's you just do one day at a time. But you know, when you look at the underlying numbers and what the inflation is doing to the purchasing power, and you look at the supply chain not having been repaired, you have to say that, 
you know, things are not rosy. Okay, so if they're not rosy, what color would you paint them? Uh, warning yellow. <laughs> okay. That's a good call. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's Guy Baker, Managing Director at the Wealth Teams Alliance, Suravine. Guy, thank you. Well, coming up, you now have the chance to vent about airline seats. This time, someone may actually be listening. And there's a new video game where you get to play as a cute little cat. And it apparently is being used to help real cats. I know you're thinking, what? We'll explain. Right now, though, some Republican candidates who've disputed the outcome of the 2020 presidential election are on the path toward winning control over how elections are run in some key battleground states. This has some election watchers and other groups concerned. Lizzie Ulmer is the Senior Vice President of Communications and Partnerships at States United Action, a bipartisan legal and democracy watchdog organization. So, Lizzie, uh, fundamentally, any sort of uh, partisan or who, who makes their feelings known about anything controversial as far as the election process really has no business, you would say, you know, being able to handle the system, right? Uh, that's a great question. I think we should start by talking about where we are right now, just halfway through primary season. We are seeing election deniers, people who have cast out on the legitimacy of the 2020 election and continue to promote conspiracy theories and lies about our elections, winning primaries for statewide positions that oversee our elections. These are your governor, your secretary of state, and attorney general. These are the people who work together to run our elections, count the votes, and defend the will of the people. And putting an election denier in charge of these elections is like putting an arsonist in charge of the fire department. What do you think this says, though, about voters? Because these people are being voted for, not by a majority, perhaps, of people in different states or or municipalities, but they're being voted for, obviously, by large numbers of people. So what does that say? I think we need to remember that there are voters that have pushed back on this trend in a lot of states. You saw that in Ohio, where Governor DeWine won his primary by 20 points, and you saw that in Georgia, which has been a really hot state on this topic. So I think it's important to keep that in context. But any election denier in office should be a concern. What about you know, those folks, as Charles mentioned, who did vote for these officials who do have you know some concerns over the voting process? Of course, vote by mail, ballot harvesting, missing ballots turning up. Did, did they have a legitimate gripe at all? I think it's really important to, for all of us to remember that this really isn't a partisan issue. You know, our freedom um, as a, an Americans is really based on our free and fair elections and the security of those elections. So, of course, it's a really important issue for Americans to care about. I think it's also really important for people to remember no matter what issue matters to you most, whether that be the environment or climate or the economy, all of those issues really run through our free and fair elections and and the states because our states run and oversee these elections, which why it's so important to have people in these but, positions. But these voters don't really think they're free and fair elections. They, they don't think they're, they're free and fair because, uh, you know, maybe it's because, yeah, sure, their candidate lost, but they don't think that it happened through fair means. So do, does, do their voices at the very least need to be heard? You know, of course, and that's why we have, uh, you know, that's why voters, uh, an informed voter is a really powerful voter. I think it's really important for, you know, for us to also, as I said, remember that this is not something that is necessarily sweeping the states. While it is deeply concerning that an election denier might be successful in any of these positions, it is something that we are seeing. We are still waiting to see how this trend is going to play out into the general. Okay, that is uh, Lizzie Ulmer, Senior Vice President of Communications and Partnerships at States United Action. Lizzie, thank you for joining us.
This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felt. School is starting up again this month for kids across Southern California. They've been through a lot these past couple of years with the pandemic, at-home learning, masks, and distancing at school. Well, this might be the year where things start to get back to, you know, some sort of normal. But kids, well, they still face anxieties. More and more pre-teens have been seen by hospitals the past few years than before for mental health issues. How can kids handle their struggles and how can parents help? Rob Gent is chief clinical officer of Embark Behavioral Health. Rob, thanks for being with us. Why is there uh, what seems to be this this surge in in at least recent uh, years uh, for preteens? Yeah, great to be with you guys. Um, It's an interesting question because the increase we've seen is preceded by COVID and to receiving that lockdown, and we've got all different dynamics really escalating from social media, being not being able to go to school for that period of time. Actually, we saw an influx of, gosh, I, I'm not getting the normal socialization. I'm not having that access to that. So we've seen an increase of anxiety, depression, especially within that preteen age from 10 to 13. And unfortunately, therapists all over the country are seeing a rise in a request to see preteens. We know that uh, the National Alliance on Mental Health, they actually report that one in six children, 16 to 17, experience some mental health each issue each year. The significance of that is you're noticing that the age range is lowering from 6 to 17. So it used to be from 13 to 17. So now we're seeing that earlier age range is really becoming exponentially experiencing more mental health crisis. We had a news story uh, here last week that caught a lot of parents' attention. One of our major local theme parks, Knott's Berry Farm, is dealing with so many incidents of bad behavior among teenagers that they have in, had to implement a new chaperone policy uh, for, for Fridays and Saturdays because it has gotten so out of control. And when we brought in people to analyze it, they said it, it's because of what's been happening to them largely these last two years and the pandemic and stay at home and all, all that stuff and the, the toll it's taken on their mental health and their behavior. And now we're getting to a point where they're all going to be in close quarters again at school. So this has a potential for some major trouble, don't you think? Uh, yeah, it is, a, it is a bit of a recipe for disaster. And oftentimes we miss the behavioral acting out, the conduct issues. All of those things can be generated from the anxiety, the depression, all the ramifications of experiencing that is, you know, depressed mood, withdrawal, separation from that connection with the parents. So it actually blows up the kids onslaughting to parks and what are they doing? They're acting out, but we need to not miss the fact that where that's driven from is underlying anxiety and depression. So unfortunately, the statistics are really clear. Of all the millions of kids out there who are suffering from anxiety and depression, only half of those will actually receive some sort of professional therapeutic service. And, and that actually raises this question, because we're dealing with preteens, which means that probably the, the people who are most likely to spot some problems, at least in early stages, would be their parents, maybe their friends, but their friends are not likely to, to do anything. What should parents be looking for? Uh, that's a great question. So first of all, I would say excessive mood swings 
And that can be from excessive sadness, apathy, anger is a big one. We often miss, like we were talking about before, that acting out behaviors or severe anxiety or severe anger, that's certainly a symptom of these underlying anxiety and depression. I would say prolonged isolation and withdrawal, especially socially, Changes in eating. Oftentimes we don't think about, oh my gosh, if I'm feeling these underlying things that I'm having or struggling with some mental health, my, my eating patterns will actually change. Similarly, it'd be changes in sleep. Are they excessively sleeping? Are they not sleeping enough? Are they staying up late at night? I would really encourage parents to look at um, social engagement. Are, is it poor social engagement? Is performance going down? Are they missing school? Those are really great things to look out for. Excessive excessive negative or deprecating language is pretty important for parents to pay attention. Are they saying things like everything is stupid or everyone is stupid or negative things about themselves? I feel worthless or I'm dumb or I'm no good. If that becomes pervasive, that's another significant thing to look out for. Other things, irrational or illogical thoughts that are pervasive over time. Drastic um, changes in physical appearance or physical symptoms. When we feel or struggle with anxiety and depression and other mental things, we'll notice that parts of our bodies will get a stomach ache, a headache, and there's no real apparent cause. Really great things for parents to look out for. Okay, Rob Gent, Chief Clinical Officer of Embark Behavioral Health. Rob, thank you. Well, we've all been there, been on an airplane seat, and we know just how rotten in an experience. It could be how uncomfortable those seats are. And everyone has an opinion about that, and they are likely shared with others. If you're one of those the more vocal people, you can tell the government all about it because the FAA wants to hear from you. It's asking for public comment over the next three months to get feedback on improving airline seating. Douglas Kidd is executive director of the National Association of Airline Passengers. And Douglas, over the last couple of decades, the amount of leg room, the average, has shrunk by about four inches. So that's really got to be fueling a lot of these uh, comments and concerns we're about to hear, right? I would think so. Um, first of all, thank you for having me um, on this program. Yes, uh, the airlines have been very good at packing more and more people into smaller and smaller spaces. Uh, without really much thought as to, uh, you know, safety or um, uh, comfort or convenience or even health. And uh, uh, I'm glad to see that the uh, uh, federal government in is looking into this. But um, I think the report was a little bit weak, mainly because uh, they were busy reading other re- people's reports rather than saying, wait a minute, do we have a problem here or not? Well, of course, the airlines have been doing it for one simple reason, money. I mean, if they can make the seats uh, more packed together and thinner and do all kinds of other little tricks in terms of how they arrange them in the cabin, they get more people on board and they make more money. But on the other hand, where has the FAA been for the past few years? Because they have to certify these aircraft. They have to certify the safety of the seating arrangements. They have to certify whether or not people, passengers in an emergency, can quickly get out of that aircraft. Uh, and yet it seems that, that these seating arrangements would defy some pretty simple logic when it comes to those areas. Uh, well, that's our uh, feeling as well. Um, one of the things that we um, take issue with in the uh, report that was issued by the uh, um, FAA was uh, 
you know, how about having the members of the committee get on an airplane, uh, you know, on the tarmac and try and do an evacuation themselves. Let them personally experience it. Let them open the emergency hatch. Let them slide down the slides. Let them experience it for themselves personally, rather than trying to read about it second or third hand. And in this regard, I would encourage all of your listeners, especially those who have been on a flight there where there was an emergency evacuation, to contact the FAA through the um, methods that they set forth and say, okay, I was on a plane that had to be evacuated. This was my experience, and this is how I think it could be better. Uh, Because that's something that I feel was missing in this report. No um, personal interviews. Uh, We had, you know, the well-known flight uh, that landed on the Hudson. How many people from that flight were interviewed for the purpose of this report to say, well, wait a minute, you landed in the water. How did it go? What could have been done better? What was your experience? That's not present in this report. So I pulled up the numbers, uh, Douglas, and I, I see that for most airlines, the average legroom is anywhere from 31 to about 33 inches. Now, for the ultra-low-cost carriers, it's down to as little as 28 inches of legroom. Now, I can hop on one of these ultra-low-cost carriers and fly to Vegas for 29 bucks. So is this a case where you kind of get what you pay for? I mean, as long as it meets those safety standards and you can get off the plane safely in an emergency, it's, it's kind of capital capitalism at work because people are still buying the tickets. They really love those low fares. Maybe it's just a compromise they're willing to take. Well, uh, yeah, there may be, there is some of that, of course, in there. Um, our, 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 this issue was dealt with actually 200 years ago when ships were sailing across the Atlantic, bringing immigrants to the United States. And Congress stepped in, uh, in the act of 1819, where they said, you have to give passengers at a minimum six square feet of space. Now, today, that would translate out into a seat that's two feet wide and three feet uh, worth of legroom uh, or 36 inches compared to the 28 that they have on the economy things. They also came out with later on with, um, you know, regulations saying you've got to have a certain number of restrooms. They've got to be big enough to take care of people. You've got to have a, se- a separate restroom for the exclusive use of women and children. Uh, these are issues that have been dealt with before. Uh, and the airlines, of course, have been pushing the limits and saying, okay, how much can we put on board to make more money? Yes, they lower the prices to uh, passengers, but, um, you know, they could have done that before. If you take a look at some of the flights uh, around the world, you'd see, for example, that to go from, say, Washington, D.C. to Vietnam might be, say, $1,000 even though you're flying through Tokyo. But what's the price to go to Tokyo? Well, that might be $2,000. So so you have to ask, how come it costs $2,000 to fly to Tokyo and $1,000 to fly to Vietnam and you're going to be on the same plane? (laughs) Are you at all realistically hopeful that the FAA is going to do anything? I think the FAA is going to do uh, modest steps. Um, but the, what, what they're faced is they don't want to, uh, change basically the, the layout of the airplanes They they want to leave the, uh, uh, airlines free to move as many people, uh, as cheaply as possible. That's their goal. And if you say to them, well, look, you know, that's maybe a little bit dangerous, a little bit unhealthy. Uh, their attitude is, is that, yeah, we want to move people and we want to move them, uh, for as, for as little as money as possible. I can understand that. But at the same time, if you're in an emergency situation, 
you know, that low price might not be quite so attractive. All right, Douglas Kidd, Executive Director of the National Association of Airline Passengers. Douglas, thanks for joining us. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. What if all the babies born in the world were female? Well, that's an issue now facing sea turtles in Florida. No male sea turtle hatchlings in the region have apparently been found by scientists the past four years. Climate change could be to blame. With us to try to explain is Betty Zirkelbach, who's manager of the Turtle Hospital in Marathon, Florida, which is in the Florida Keys. Betty, thanks for being with us. So that just sounds strange. Why would we only be getting female turtles? Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. And um, the important thing to realize is sea turtles don't have sex chromosomes. Instead, they exhibit temperature-dependent sex determination, which basically means the sex of a sea turtle is determined by the the temperature of the sand, why that egg is incubating, so hot summers breed primarily females and cooler summers primarily males. Is that that's fascinating? I, I never knew that. That is wild. It is. And it, it is something that is alarming because Florida um, climatologists have found over the past six years the temperatures are steadily rising, and in the past four years, biologists that are studying sea turtle hatchlings they've not find found any males, so no male new baby sea turtles in the past four years. Okay, so that kind of blows my theory out of the water because I figured, you know, us vertebrates, we all start female in the womb, but then those of us who become males because of some sort of hormonal intervention, and I would assume that climate change stopped that chain, but uh, that's really not what's factoring in here. Yeah, it's different for some reptiles, and uh it's really important to take a look at sea turtles. They've been on our planet and they've evolved to survive our oceans for over 110 million years. Um, it's hard to think about, but they were swimming in our oceans when dinosaurs roamed our land. And to think that there's a chance that they could go extinct on our watch, it, it is frightening. And what's the solution? Um, that's a good question. I think the awareness right now is there. There are scientists looking at it. All species of sea turtles in and around the United States are protected by the Endangered Species Act, um, which means they're protected by not only just state regulations, but also federal regulations. So scientists are studying it. Currently in the United States, there are no hatcheries, so there's no manipulation, you know, of the temperature of the sand to determine, you know, to get more boys. But certainly that is something that could be looked at very, you know, very cautiously, um, of the long-term ramifications of altering that obviously um, have not been studied and is something to consider. I'm just, I'm just curious about, I am curious about something before we had all these climate change issues, what was the natural distribution of male to female? Uh, Was it normally about a 50, 50 split? Um, About a 50, 50. I I looked at some research papers on the, the, you know, gone back maybe over 12 years, (laughs) It was maybe 67% female. Oh, it can't, it, is it just sea turtles? It can't just be sea turtles, is it? I mean, are there other animals out there that are you know, temperature dependent for their sex? I, I know that crocodiles are, and it's the reverse. And I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I know that the cooler summers breed mostly females with the crocodiles um, because they're also uh, temperature dependent. 
So if I understand you correctly, if we had hatcheries uh, in this country, we could artificially create the proper uh, temperature in sand, right, in order to bring about a more equal distribution of male to female turtles. Is that it? Um, you could you you could certainly manipulate um, the hatchling sex ratios, you know, in a controlled environment, um, and it would you know have an effect on the recovery, you know, of the male population. Um, but there's a lot that needs to be studied and understood before even considering that. This is like Jurassic Park in reverse, because the scientists <laughs> engineered the dinosaurs to be all female so they could keep them under control. They wouldn't reproduce. But, you know, as they say, nature found a way. This is kind of like, I don't know, whoever is, whether, whether it's man or whatever, we're responsible for climate change. I guess we're finding a way to undo that. Well, I don't, again, in the United States, there's nobody currently doing that that I'm aware of. Um, and I know with strict regulations, they don't even allow hatcheries, you know, in this country at this point. And, you know, I'm an eternal optimist and I guess I have one glimmer of hope. I'm from Delaware, which is a coastal state much further north. And in 2018, they had their first successful loggerhead nest um, and where they actually had eggs hatch out. And my guess would be that they were probably boy turtles. So um, these animals do migrate and the hope is um, maybe they could evolve a rapid, you know, evolutionary rescue and um, maybe go further north up the coast. Um, is this having an impact on the behavior of, of the female turtles? Um, that's a good question. Um, sea turtles take a long time to be sexually reproductive. Um, 20 and 25 years old is how old they are when they're sexually reproductive. So I don't think we're going to see really the effects of this for another decade or so. That's Betty Zirkelbach, manager of the Turtle Hospital in Marathon, Florida. A new uh, video game featuring a frisky feline is surging in popularity. It's called Stray. You play as if you were a cute little orange tabby that has to navigate through a long-forgotten city, seeing the world through the eyes of a cat. Well, no surprise that cat lovers are hooked on this game. Animal organizations have been taking advantage of the popularity, using it to raise money. Brendan Gebson is a marketing specialist for the Nebraska Humane Society, and Christy Hedrick is a publicist assistant at Otter PR. She is a gamer who has played Stray and previously worked at an animal hospital. So, Christy, what's the appeal? I mean, sounds fun, is it? I mean... Even if you're not a fan of cats, I can see this appealing to everybody who doesn't want to walk around and knock things off and walk on keyboards with <laughs> absolutely no reprimand. I mean, well, I do that it, anyway, and I'm not a cat. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, you set that I mean, one up for him. Yeah. <laughs> I, I tell you, Stray really just you really do play through the eyes of a cat. And being a cat owner myself and a cat lover, uh, being able to walk across like rooftops and knock off these paint cans and even to the point of seeing your little paw prints on the floor from where the paint falls. I mean, you really, you cannot ask for anything better and getting to walk around. I think they made a button to where you can press the button and you just, you meow. So I can't tell you how many times I just sat there just pressing this button to meow just to see if my cats would react. But it was just so, I mean, it was just so much fun. <laughs> okay, so Brendan, how is is this video game where you get to 
pretend you're a cat or, or go around and, and feel like you're a cat. How is that helping actual cats? Yeah, so we connected with Annapurna Interactive, the company that published the game, in early June, and they actually uh, gave us a few codes for the game to give away in a fundraiser. We uh, raffled off for the codes for $5 donations uh, the weekend ahead of the game's release. By the time the fundraiser was done, we had raised over 7000 from close to 550 different donations. Wow, that's, I mean... That's great because, you know, when you uh, role play as a you know, cute little cat, I mean, you kind of form a bond. You're like, oh, okay, well, this is actually might you be do. happening out here. And, uh, yeah, so that's the whole idea, right? Yeah, it is. I noticed, you know, a lot of people were kind of shut in during the early stages of COVID with their cats. And I know I have always looked at my cats and been like, what are they, what are they thinking of? What, what, what would it be like to be them? And that's what, that's what Stray does. Like, it puts you in the shoes of a cat. Brian, why, why do I have a feeling you're, you're going to start playing this game? Yeah, I'm not downloading it right now. I want to. <laughs> I don't even have a cat, but uh, yeah, it, it sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, you just go around without a care in the world, just like a real cat. Well, I mean, you got to you know find food and and survive, but I mean that's all part of those, the fun. Those minor things, minor yes, things, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Christy, how did, how did you come across this anyway? You know, I, like you mentioned, I'm a huge gamer. Um, that's gaming's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. And I remember seeing um, advertisements for for Stray. And the same day that it actually released, I saw it pop up on my my PlayStation. So I said, you know what? Let me give it a download. Let me give it a try. Um, it's not usually my typical game, but I mean, the moment that the intro started playing. I mean, they, they just hook you. You start with just a little cat family and it's like you do cat things and get to scratch a tree and you get to rub up against each other and they're purring. And it's like, this is the cutest thing that I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, it's a great little pastime because look, we could all use a break and, and it just seems like a, you know, and cute cats. I mean, it's a, it's a winning formula. Let's just, let's just admit it. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. So, Brendan, do you see applications for the, if there are other games, I guess, for other animals? Would that, you think, have the same uh, impact? You know, I think there are opportunities out there. There are certainly other video games where you play as animals. Um, a few years ago, a game came out called Untitled Goose Game. Uh, wait, wait <laughs> so what, was it like, called? what was it called? Untitled Goose Game. Okay. I know it sounds, it sounds weird, but that is the title of the game. All right. um, where you played as a goose, and there are, I'm sure, other games coming out in the future where you can play as other sorts of animals. But even beyond that, I think there is sort of a little bit of an untapped relationship between gamers and animal shelters. <laughs> and I think this is like like the first step there to to kind of forge this bond. And, you know, talking about adoption, which is, you know, such an important issue here. And, uh, you know, it has been such thrown into shock because of COVID, everything that's happened. Uh, uh, Brennan, what's the the, the status right now at uh, the shelters there uh, near you? Is there a problem getting enough? Uh, Are you hitting capacity? Are there enough people there to to adopt? Or how are you guys looking? You know, our adoption numbers are steady, but we are, it does seem like we're getting more adoptable animals in. I can tell you today uh, at Nebraska Humane Society, we have over, a well, this morning, we had over 130 adoptable dogs and over 80 cats. So it's, it's a lot. We are getting them out. Um, but, you know, you know, you know, guys, I, I, as you guys are talking, I'm, I'm sort of sitting here and I'm thinking now, would I rather 
play a video game as a goose or as a cat. <laughs> and, and you know, it's, a, it's kind of, I can think of pluses and minuses for both. Cat for sure, because you can climb walls and trees. Yeah. But and, as a goose, you can honk and flap your wings at people. And, but people you know. eat, eat geese, don't they? Well, I mean, like, yeah. right in, like, going back to, like, your, the Christmas carol, wasn't it? Like a, a, yeah. a Christmas mm-hmm. goose or something? Yeah, or, your goose is cooked. Yeah. yeah. I, I shouldn't make white, but okay. <laughs> All right. That's uh, Brennan Gibson, marketing specialist uh, for the Nebraska Humane Society, and uh, Christy Hedrick, a publicist assistant at Otter PR. Would you, Thanks, guys. Would you do goose, or, or would you be a goose or, or a cat? I'd much definitely much rather be a cat. Okay, why? Because well, you're you're agile, you have just yeah. more free. I, I, I mean, I guess you could fly, but I don't yeah, know. But I don't know. I mean, that would that be fun if I was like like a goose who could just like fly south for the winter or something well, if, like that. that that'd be fun. And, and if you're a goose, you could fly and avoid all those crummy airline seats that we talked about. You could. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> Perfect. This has been KNX in depth.